Hello and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I'm your host, Liam Clifford. And I'm your co-host, Francesco Colosimo. And today we're here with Professor Samuel Wong. Thank you so much for being here, Professor Wong. It's a great pleasure. My pleasure, too. So, Professor Wong, um, we understand that you did a keynote speech here at, at, the, at the university in regards to COVID and how it's affecting people and their mental health. Do you just want to go into a bit of detail as to um, what your, your keynote presentation entailed? It entails um, some of the studies that recently have been conducted um, around the world on the increase in the prevalence of uh, mental health related issues during the COVID-19. So that includes um, some of the increases in the prevalence of depressive and anxiety symptoms, insomnia, and some of the psychosocial issues related to COVID-19, including the problems of loneliness, um, inaccessibility of some of the health services uh, for older adults, and also how COVID-19 might have differentially impacted those who might be socially disadvantaged. So that's really interesting, um, Dr. Wang. You mentioned that, you know, there may be certain groups that are disproportionately affected, you know, in regards to their mental health and, and COVID-19. Um, would you like to explain this further? Yes. Um, for a lot of these research evidence point to those, uh, for example, who might be more socially vulnerable, for example, the people in low paying jobs, uh, they might have difficulty to uh, protect themselves from the infection as they are often being unable to work from home. And they might have problems of accessing uh, protective equipment to protect themselves and their families. Another group are the older adults um, who might not have the usual physical support during the pandemic, which might make them suffer from increased susceptibility to mental health related issues resulting from lack of support and maybe loneliness uh, during this time. Now it's 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 clear that COVID nineteen has affected us in in a in a multitude of ways. Mental health being one component. Have you found that individuals with prior mental health conditions have had their conditions exacerbated by the onset of the virus? What I'm what I'm more worried about is those people who might have uh, improved before or who may be in remission that they might be experiencing a relapse due to the lack of support, due to the exposure of the media, emphasizing on the risk of being infected, some of the misinformation uh, in the media, and the especially affecting those who might have lower health literacy, for example. Um, some research has shown that people with low health literacy are more susceptible for some of the uh, mental health issues, and also they might be more at risk for being infected due to the misinformation that they take, and also that um, they might take the information from these channels. Yeah, that's, you know, that's becoming a major issue in, in today's society, especially with the prominence of, you know, social media and all these things where, 
especially in regards to important information and, you know, COVID-19 information, it's becoming really hard to tell, um, you know, which information is true and, and which isn't. Um, so what do you think, you know, some of the strategies are to kind of combat this misinformation and just ensuring that, you know, everyone's having the, the most correct information? I think it's a difficult issue to deal with because we, we often, I, I think somehow, I think the world may be sometimes very divided on, on a lot of things and, and social inequality uh, is becoming emergent issues due to, um, due to a lot of the differences in terms of um, a health system and also the distribution of resources. Um, but although I think there's a difference across different countries, depending on the uh, social system that, that the country uh, has. But I think one of the ways to actually understand these people more first, such that you can gain the trust, because I believe different, um, different sector of the population may trust different sources of information. So before we can say we can intervene, we really need to do more research to understand these people, uh, their backgrounds, who they trust, and actually to convey the correct information to those people that they trust and help them to actually in a way to empower these people to spread the right messages. So, so I guess we, a lot of the research and information may be from more um, the top, right, from the government, but when you try to implement and try to influence people's behaviors, you really need a bottom-up approach um, to see where they're coming from. For example, in our survey that was conducted within 72 hours of the first case in Hong Kong, we realized that at that time, a lot of people don't trust the government. Um, actually, they trust the doctors the most. However, it's very hard to get access to the doctors because of the... Um, some of the clinics were very busy dealing with COVID-19 or they are in preparedness or some of the clinics were closed. So it really takes um, much effort for the government to have um, daily briefing, daily communications with reporters um, and transparency uh, increase to, to gain the trust from the public. And I think, I think raising the point of government is a very important point because it's been widely documented that the relationship between Beijing and Hong Kong is tense to, to say the least. How has that relationship affected Hong Kong's ability to combat the virus? I think because of the previous, the year prior to this, is there, there was a social unrest in Hong Kong mm -hmm. that developed sort of a divide in the society and a lot of people might not trust the government and that's what that's what the distrust was coming from. We also did the study in the UK uh, with Imperial College London, and we found that over there, people do trust the government more, and, and they actually uh, receive the information from uh, the government more often. So in Hong Kong, we found that people trust the, the social media more. So they would trust the Facebook, the IG, and, and all these different medias that is available in Hong Kong. So, but, but because of the government doing the daily briefing and the person who represent the, to speak a very uh, warm and genuine um, public health doctor who are very willing to take questions and shows the patients with no, um, you know, with, with a lot of patience and really let people ask the questions. 
and there. So, so, so I think slowly over time, people are getting the trust. Although I can still say that there's still a lot of distrust, but I think there's a bit of an improvement. At least people will still, I mean, if you look at the Facebook, whatever the media, the news, they will usually have a good comments about this, um, this doctor who, who has been working daily since January. We're still seeing her every day at 4 p.m. So it become a sort of an icon for the uh, for someone who is very objective, who is non-biased, who is willing to listen, uh, and also willing to admit mistakes. Actually, sometimes she said that you know I made a mistake and blah blah blah. So she's very transparent, so, and and people gain the trust from that. I think I think we need some genuineness in our uh, communication and. Uh, and and also be factual and show people that you 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 also have limited uh, information sometimes so you don't know anything i'm not sorry you don't know everything so sometimes there's uncertainty and she admitted that from time to time i think it's you know one of the really interesting things you said there was that um, often, you know, some of this information communication, it, it could differ between countries or cultures um, based on, you know, their trust with the government or, or how they trust certain media platforms. Um, I guess going on that, I was wondering if there were any major cultural differences or differences across countries um, in the mental health um, of these countries, you know, during this pandemic. I, I haven't come across a, a clear differences in terms of the problem. It seems, it seems everywhere there's an increasing prevalence of, of mental health issues. Um, you know, study have done um, from China, from um, Japan, from uh, Israel, from Italy, Canada, and you can see all these results. The differences is sometimes on how the health system deal with the problems. And there are maybe differences between countries. For example, uh, here in Hong Kong, um, most of the clinics are still open. Um, and we don't have a very strong tele uh, consultation system. So um, people still go to the clinics and, and be, because people are used to wearing masks, they are very aware of the fact that they wear masks and perform the social high, uh, the infection control measures, etc. So they don't have a lot of objection to that. Um, well, I think different countries may have different um, ways of that. And, and I think there's differences in suicide rate, for example, in different countries. And that I think with the pandemic, that might exacerbate a pre-existing pre differences in terms of um, the prevalence of uh, diseases. And, and I think that's a really interesting point, how certain populations are already accustomed to wearing a mask, just because it had been a part of that culture, um, you know, prior to the onset of the virus. Now, specifically to Hong Kong, how, how has it been able to uh, really fight the virus? Because I, from what I understand, Hong Kong has incredibly high population density, which I mean, in theory, is is breeding grounds for a virus. But how how is how is the SAR been able to 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 really combat the virus? I think one of the or I would say the advantage, but one of the things that we have learned from our experience. So we have the SARS in two thousand three, and that sort of immunized the people about new emerging infectious diseases. So. 
So even before January, people are very aware of the impacts of this emerging infectious disease and people are very worried. And, and that's why they are very ready to take precautions um, precaution against the disease. Um, and even before the current uh, pandemic, all the doctors and healthcare providers, they wear masks in, in hospital and clinics. Even family doctors wear the masks to see the patients for the last 15 years since SARS. So when, when the first case uh, occurred in Hong Kong, people, more than 95% of people were wearing masks already. So, so that's why I think part of the reason um, is that people are very willing to take the infection control measures simply because they are more used to it, they're more accepting it. And, and I think people do it before the evidence on the uh, wearing mask come out, you know? So, so it, which is quite different from other parts of the world. Um, and I, I think that that might account for that. And, and now we are having, I think today we have about 70 something cases just today. And people are already very worried and they're thinking about, uh, more restriction, et cetera. Um, so people are very alert. Um, and, and I think that's the general, and because I think because of the density, people tend to learn from each other also. So there's a, there's a good side for that because you can, you know, social modeling, you can, you know, one of the health behavior changes that you have some social, according to some of the theories, right? So you, when you go to the street, you see all these people wearing masks. It's very hard not to wear them. So, so, so it, it, it's sort of, uh, and because it's so densely populated, people would just look at you if you don't wear them um, because they know there's increased risk. So I, I guess it's a double-edged sword. It, 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 it goes both ways. So it is more at risk, but people are more aware and they can more likely to see a model. Uh, another person's wearing mask. So, so, so I guess that, that might, that might uh, account for the reasons. I think it's really interesting that you said that, you know, you, a lot of people may feel kind of pressured to take some precautionary, you know, measures like social distance or wear a mask just because um, they, they see other people doing that. I, I wish uh, there was more of that over here, um, you know, in Canada and North America. Um, and I guess just switching over, um, you know, you know, we study a lot of graduate students' research here at, at, on this show, um, and we're hearing that a lot of people's research is being affected by the COVID-19 pandemic and, you know, um, getting participants and so forth and so on. Um, and, you know, your research is on COVID-19. Um, were you kind of experiencing some difficulties researching COVID-19, you know, due to COVID-19? Um, for COVID-19... Um, I think, I think because we, initially we did a sort of an online survey, so that, that was not effective because the ethics approval was sought, um, because we were expecting something like that even in November and December. So, so it's an ongoing thing. Um, what I, what I found difficult to, um, uh, to have problems is the non-COVID-19 research. I have uh, several randomized controlled trials that need to recruit all the adults. In the community, and they all stopped um, because of COVID nineteen. It's either that there's a restriction on gathering, or uh, that people don't want to come, 
or that um, it's it's just or or it's harder to find um, even the instructor or, or people who do the intervention to come and work for you during this time. So so there's a huge delay uh, for that, and and I'm more worried about those because COVID nineteen sometimes get the priority now. So people tends to put more resources in that. Um, so the ongoing research, which is also important, like chronic disease, or the adult health, environmental health, sometimes get less attention. And that, to me, is also a problem because those things are not less important than COVID-19. In addition to COVID-19, we should still invest in the other research areas. Um, um, and, and because they, they are affecting each other as well. You know, what is COVID-19? Oh, COVID-19 is everywhere now. So, so all the topics that we did before are still being affected and they might, uh, and the problem that we studied before might be worsened during the COVID-19. So, so, so I, think, I think that's the difficulty I found. And the, and the funders have no, have sometimes do not have enough compassion for us. <laughs> and they still ask for your interim report and the updates on recruitment. Um, so, so I, I think um, I think it's difficult because it's long. It's one year. It's almost one year now, um, and and they only have the budget. So, so how long can you extend a thing for? And you still need to uh, recruit people, and and the funding agency or or the donations may be uh, getting less because of the economy. So, so so there are other impacts that that are interacting and affecting uh, each other. And, and I think I think you mentioned a, an important point uh, in in the allocation of resources and how important it is to make sure that certain things are prioritized other over others. Now, has this sort of contributed to greater, I guess, calls for um, mental health supports for people in Hong Kong? Obviously, mental health has been something that has come up over the last couple of years and is slowly becoming a largely developing field. Um, has the virus really contributed to people's, I guess, understanding of how important it is to ensure that your mental health is, is in good standing? I think from the, I'm not sure is it because of the culture or whatever, mental health have not received the attention that I think it's needed. And it has always been like, or it's not always, but have been a long time like that. I cannot say always. I don't know what many years ago it was. But, um, and it, during the COVID-19, I still think the physical measures, the infectious diseases, they, they still uh, tend to uh, attract more attention than the consequences of COVID-19. So I, I, I think this, this continues to be a problem that people tend not to think of mental health as an essential component of health. Uh, compared to the other aspects of healthcare or health. So unless you see an increase or a dramatic increase in, in mortality, um, which takes time to see, I think still, people still haven't paid enough attention to mental health and mental well-being. Um, and, and there's a tendency for people to look into uh, diseases which is more um, easier to measure, easier to quantify, um, and things like quality of life, those sort of things, um, and people tend to think it of a secondary uh, importance compared to, uh, you know, uh, 
uh, other statistics that, that we see? Yeah, you know, I think the idea that mental health is as important as it is, is kind of gaining traction everywhere. And, and we would like to see, you know, increased measures and interventions, you know, placed yeah. globally to, you know, increase everyone's mental health, not just because of COVID, but just in general. Um, have you seen any, you know, promising interventions or strategies or ways that are kind of coming up right now that have been successful and kind of aiding people in, in improving their mental health? I've, I've, I've done a brief literature search as you couldn't find a very good evidence-based intervention so far. So since everyone's focusing on the epidemiology and, and how to uh, control the infectious disease, doing modeling, et cetera, but there's much lack uh, information and evidence-based intervention for mental health. Um, there is some intervention from mainland China which talk about tele-consultation um, um, and some of the emergency support and crisis support for mental health. Um, but I don't think they are of um, um, really, um, like it's, it's not of those uh, bigger studies that like uh, a good trial to see. So, so these are more like a pre-imposed intervention and just an evaluation. Um, and I think some of the countries are just very busy doing, dealing with the mortality and the mobility with the COVID-19 that they haven't, they, they haven't have the time and resources yet to, since not on the priority yet for, for devoting to evaluate the mental health interventions yet. And it uh, it almost provides a a research gap for 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 further uh, um, uh, you know analysis of of how a virus um, is not just a superficially um, mortal instance. It's 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 a, it's a it's really a um, you know a multi layered um, I guess obstacle for society with with the implications of mental health. Now it's it's apparent that. Uh, amongst a lot of young people, um, as we are all of a younger demographic, um, can tend to suffer from mental health quite, uh, quite, quite, quite stringently. And I, I think through your research, um, you know, you provide uh, an an important an important note um, to those individuals. Is there any recommendations you would have for these people? Uh, undergoing uh, mental health issues at the moment and what they can do to sort of help, I guess, give themselves the best chance to succeed? Yeah, I think, I think uh, first of all, they, even though they might not be able to go out sometimes, they can, they can keep the physical activities. I think exercise, uh, even at home, moving a bit will help them. The second, they can try mindfulness or some brief meditation, breathing exercise to do that. And, and third, they can observe and knowing when it's enough for the information. They should have some break time from the news, from the information. You know, they, they, shouldn't, they shouldn't be, you know, I, I think the, the iPhone is so attractive these days. They have all these nice uh, pop-up to, to, uh, to use you. <laughs> so the people get it addicted to that so we need really need a break to to be away from that and put them away not in our visual field such that we will not be 
lured into seeing it every five minutes or 10 minutes. So, so I think having a break, meditation, um, uh, and some exercise, that could definitely help them um, to, to at least get some uh, distraction from the news, from the COVID-19. Yeah, I think uh, those are all, you know, really great strategies to, you know, just try try to break up the monotony and, and try to, you know, switch away from all the COVID-19 or all, you know, some of the negative news that's happening right now. Um, and I guess, you know, we spoke about, you know, some groups that could be potentially vulnerable to some mental health issues. Um and, you know, one of the groups that I thought of um, was students, considering, you know, we're all students and, you know, historically um, we have seen some, you know, mental health issues in, in the student population, you know, specifically in university and so on. Um, have you heard anything about this, about, um, you know, the mental health of students during COVID-19? Some of my colleagues have done some survey, but they're still getting results back. It seems the students are also affected quite a lot. And I would not be surprised to see an increase in prevalence of anxiety and depression. Um, and because of COVID-19, I, I found that over the last decade uh, or almost 15, 16 years, I found there's an increasing prevalence of mental health related issues among students. Um, and it seems that the stress, the daily stress and, and the use of the, um, um, Often the technology and etc. might have exacerbated some of that. Uh, um, so, so I think I think I think it is an important issue to look into. Yeah, it's um, you know, it's it's that constant exposure to all of this unfortunately negative news that I I feel so often undermines um people's people's well being. Just uh, you know, for lack of better term, now. Dr. Wong, is there is there any hope? Can we can we hope towards the future um, for everyone's mental well being? Like, is this is this something that we can we can truly achieve together as a sort of global society? Well, I I think there's always hope. The fact that all of you are interested in this topic shows there's hope, right? So and and, and we're all willing to address this and to raise this up and to you know, to, to well, in, in a way, it's fighting for, for the proper attention to this problem. Shows that there's hope. So, um, and I think, I think the, the good thing about the internet, et cetera, is it makes it much easier to connect, right? So that things like what we're doing now is, 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 is could be a good way to, to gather more people and the momentum to study more and to, evaluate more important solutions to this problem. I think the more people are involved, the better solutions we can think of. Absolutely. I think um, you bring up a really good point in how, you know, even though we're all remote and even though we're all at home, um, reaching out to others and some friends could really, you know, just help one person's mental health, but also create a larger change and some sort of, you know, ripple effect. Um, and it, it appears that, you know, we're coming towards the end of our session. Um, Dr. Wong, uh, would you like to have any last sentiments for us um, before we end off our great session with you? Um, yeah, I, I, I think we should um, always be hopeful. And, and I think seeing 
the bunch of, I think the students, et cetera, that are interested in the topic and the response shows that we should be hopeful. So I think what we need to do is to, to um, have the confidence of believing what we're doing is important and to change, um, to be a change agent ourselves for this problem. Very good. Well, you heard it here first, folks, that we are, we are hopeful for humanity's future. Dr. Wong, is there any sort of website or social media you'd like to share with our audience? Yeah, if you're interested in, in the work that, that we're doing in our school, our, our website is um, sphpc.cuhk.edu.hk, the School of Public and Primary Care at Chinese University of Hong Kong. Thank you very much. This has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Liam Clifford, and my co-host was Francesco Colissimo. We've been speaking with Professor Samuel Wong, and this episode was produced by Ariel Frame. If you would like to be involved with the show or get in contact with us, email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at gradcastradio. To listen to us, we are on Radio Western 94.9 FM. You can also find all of our episodes on our website at gradcast.ca or on podcast apps like Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Alternatively, select podcasts have been uploaded to YouTube at Gradcast Radio. Thank you for listening and have a good day.